You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Well, thank you, band musicians, kids, for leading us as we worship in song together this morning. So glad for the opportunity to open up God's Word again with you on this Christmas time Sunday. Since Christmas is right upon us here this week, I want to look this morning with you at a classic Christmas text, which just happens to be our next passage in Matthew chapter 13, the well-known parable of the sower and the soils. Now you might be thinking, Ben, that's That's not a passage about Christmas at all, and I totally understand if that's what you think and how you feel, but what I want to show you this morning is that this passage, uh, the distance from this story to the Christmas story really isn't that far at all. In fact, there's a path from this story that takes us right to the real Christmas story that we see here in the New Testament. So let's look this morning at Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, read verses 1 down through verse 23. This is God's word. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they didn't have much soil. Immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, Well, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and didn't see it, to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground... 
This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, well, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another case sixty, and in another thirty. Well, let's pray. Father, I pray now as we look at this, your word, uh, you'd give us clarity and insight and understanding, particularly, Lord, as we look at this passage which is all about hearing and receiving and understanding your word, we will need your help. We'll need your spirit who inspired these words to, to reveal the truth of them and the importance of them and the application of them to our hearts and lives. So I pray that you do that work for your glory and for our joy in you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's a website that I visit quite frequently. Maybe you've seen it. It's called Real Clear Politics. Real Clear Politics is a polling organization and a political news aggregator. They take news articles about politics from various other sites and writers and they lump them all together and list them out on their homepage. And they work very hard to, to bring articles from both sides of the aisle, all parts of the spectrum, to be as nonpartisan and unbiased as they can be. And it's a pretty interesting website to visit and check out. Sometimes you can find some pretty interesting articles. But, but what is even more fascinating to me is just going to their homepage and reading the lists of the articles there. It's fascinating you would think that the writers of these articles could not all possibly be reporting on the same events. There's just no way. You, you, read, you get headlines. Like one headline will say something like this. Uh, impeachment spells the end of the Trump presidency. And the very next headline will say, impeachment guarantees Trump 2020 win. And you go, how? It can't be both. Or one, from yesterday... One headline, Pelosi was right on everything, including impeachment. The next headline, Pelosi's impeachment, a partisan travesty. And regardless of your politics, you'd think the writers of these different articles must be writing out events on, about events on two entirely different planets. How do different people, looking at ostensibly the same events, it's all on C-SPAN, if you care enough, you can read the transcripts of the proceedings, how do the different people look at the same events and come up with such radically different conclusions about what's going on? Well, that's the kind of question Jesus is addressing here in Matthew 13. Jesus was big news in his day. Great crowds followed him, hearing him teach, seeing him heal people, feed multitudes, perform miracles. Jesus was in what we would call today a celebrity. And he wasn't everywhere. There was no social media. There was no television. There was no radio. But when he came or when he was coming to town, news spread and crowds appeared to see Jesus. Lots of people followed his moves, came to hear him speak, came to see his miracles. Many came to 
to benefit themselves from his miraculous and healing powers. Jesus had close friends. He had sympathetic supporters. He had skeptical doubters. He had hostile enemies. It, it would seem that they all saw and heard the same things. But their responses were often radically different. Which brings us to this story about the sower and the seeds this morning in Matthew chapter 13. It has three clear sections, and I want you to see those to understand what we're going to focus on this morning. The first section is the story, the parable itself, in verses 1 through 9 about the sower and the seed. A, a parable is a special kind of story. It's a special kind of story. It's a, it's a story that doesn't simply entertain or inform, but it has meaning. And that meaning is always just below the surface. It's not there and obvious on the top. It's subtle. Parables are designed to make people think and reflect. To not just read what's on the surface of the story, but the deeper meaning and significance that travels right below it. Jesus uses parables all the time. He's teaching in parables constantly. Telling stories leading people to think and reflect and try to discern what the real meaning is. Well, this parable, as we read a few minutes ago, is, is about a sower sowing his seed, a farmer planting. When I was in junior high, I worked for a few weeks during the planting season for a friend of mine's dad. His dad was a farmer, and they planted, among other things, melons. And they had, I think they had invented and developed this themselves, a mechanical planting machine that would take plants and put them in the ground. And so we had four of us, you know, young kids like me, where we'd sit in the back and we had these plast molded plastic chairs that faced the back of the trailer and the tractors pulling us from up here. And to the side was a kind of a steel rack and this whole flat of melon plants, you know, six inches tall or so. And in front of us was a, a little square, it looked almost like a cup holder from McDonald's, but it wasn't made out of cardboard, it was made out of aluminum. And, and each cup spot didn't have a flat bottom, it was a cone that flipped open, hinged at the top, it would flip open. And that, that mechanism had four slots, and one of the slots, uh, when it was in a certain position, was the drop slot. And as it turned, and as the thing slowly moved, the action of the wheels turned this, and you'd drop one in the cone, and when, when, um, when the, the got around to the front side, that cone would open, it would drop it down into the ground into a little hole that it made while the machine was moving, pack the plant and keep going. You just, it's packing plants as we go. It's a pretty, I'd kind of like to see it again. It's been 30 years ago, but it has to be a nifty, a nifty tool. And so, but it planted and you're driving the tractor and it's planting on, on beds that have been raised for these melons and, you know, pretty nice, neat rows. You've seen fields planted with GPS tractors. You got, you know, field lines a half mile long and perfectly straight, but that's not how they planted in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, they'd take a handful of seed out of a sack and they'd throw it in the ground. No nice, neat rows. They'd just cast in the seed, pull it out and throw it. And the seed would land more or less haphazardly wherever it would. Well, how would that seed fare? Well, it depended on what kind of ground it landed on. If it landed in good soil probably do well. If it landed in something not so great, it, it wouldn't do so well. That's the story Jesus tells. Some of the seed lands on a hard path. It's so hard, it's so trampled on and compressed down that the seed can't get in. And eventually a bird comes along and carries it away and 
That seed ends up being nothing. Other seed would land on soil, dirt, but dirt that was just barely, the ground in Palestine is largely very rocky, and it just a thin layer of soil, and it would take root, but it would not deep root. There wasn't any way to do that, and before long, the sun would come up, and it would be hot, and it would scorch that plant, and it would wither away and die. Or the third kind of soil is among thorns. Lots of other competing plants stealing energy and nutrients from the plant. And it, it would grow up some, but it wouldn't grow up well, and it really wouldn't produce much of any fruit. And, and then, of course, finally, and hopefully for the farmer, most of the seed would land on good soil. And it would take root, and it would grow, and it would produce fruit. So that's the story Jesus tells in this first section. Well, the third section, starting in verse 18, is his explanation of that story. What did it mean? What's that, that below-the-surface meaning that they're supposed to get? And Jesus explains it very clearly for them. The seed is the Word of God. The sower is the person proclaiming the Word of God. And the Word goes out and it lands on different kinds of soils, different kinds of hearts. And what that Word does, what the seed of the Word does in a person's heart depends on what kind of heart they have. Some people, some of that seed lands on the path. The heart is so hard that the evil one comes and quickly snatches it away. There's no life there at all. Some of it lands on rocky ground. The, the roots that are planted are so shallow that when, Jesus says, when trouble comes, when the sun comes up and burns hot and it becomes difficult to embrace and follow the word, oh, they wither and die. They can't, they can't take it. Trouble is the end of it. Some lands among thorns, and Jesus says the cares of the world and, and the desire and deceitfulness of riches just choke it out. There's so many distractions, so many things that pull the word and that heart away from God and his word and never bears fruit. And then, of course, some land on good soil, soft, fertile hearts, and the word takes root and it grows and it produces fruit. It's, it's a familiar story. Uh, we looked at it together uh, just a couple months ago in our series back to the book about the Bible. But, but this morning, I don't want to focus so much on the story itself in that first section or the explanation of the story in the third section. I want to think about the middle section with you in verses 10 to 17. It's no accident that these verses occur in connection to this parable. The parable and its explanation explain what happens when God's word is proclaimed. And it explains why it happens that way, why God's word produces such different responses in different people. You've seen that probably in your own life. You, you talk about Jesus. You talk about God and his word, his spiritual things with people in your family or your school or your neighborhood or your workplace. And some people are interested. Some people are open. Interested in hearing, interested in talking, interested in learning more. And other people want, want nothing to do with it. And all sorts of places in between. And of course, probably you've seen these different responses in your own heart. There was a time when you weren't all that interested in the things of God. Some of us perhaps may feel that right now. But many of us, there's been a time when our perspective, when the response of our heart changed. We moved from skeptical or doubting or stubbornly resisting what God's word said 
to embracing it as true and beautiful and good and right. Many of us have staked our eternal future on the truth of God and his word and his son, Jesus Christ. Well, this story tells us that we respond to God and his word based on the kind of heart we have. We like to think of ourselves as having free and independent minds. We make calculating rational decisions, just examining the evidence that's before us. But the truth is we all respond, whether it's to politics or the Bible or Jesus or anything else, out of the values and presuppositions and priorities and prejudices that we already possess. We don't come as neutral, unbiased free agents. Those things color what we see, they distort what we hear, they cloud how we think far more than we acknowledge or realize. What's going on with us is our decisions are driven not by independent rational analysis, but by what our hearts love and by what our desires crave. This parable and explanation tells us what's going on with us. Why we respond the way that we respond. But this middle section, in verses 10 to 17, are concerned about what God is doing in all of this. What is God doing? In verse 10, the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? In other words, Jesus, why are you making it harder to understand? Jesus, why don't you put all your cards on the table? Why don't you be open and clear and obvious? Tell them exactly who you are. Prove it by miracles beyond any shadow of doubt. Convince them to follow you. Why parables? Well, listen, the day is coming when Jesus is going to come back to the earth again, and it's going to look very different than the first time. He's not going to speak in parables. He's going to come, Thessalonians says, to be marveled at. He's going to come, Philippians tells us, in such a way that every knee will bow and tongue confess, Jesus is King and Jesus is Lord. There will be nothing opaque, nothing unclear, nothing underneath the surface. He'll come as a king and nobody will doubt it. But here in Matthew 13, before his death and resurrection, Jesus is still speaking in parables. And the disciples want to know why. Jesus, why don't you make it all obvious? And Jesus' answer is very telling. In verse 11, he says, To you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it's not been given. Those are sobering words. God's kingdom, his good rule, where he writes what's wrong and restores peace and justice and love to this world that lacks it so much. What God is doing there, he's, first of all, he says, is a secret. It's not obvious. A smart person applying logic and reason isn't going to figure it out. Like any secret, to know it, somebody has to tell you. It has to be revealed. Which means, secondly, that this knowledge of God's kingdom, this understanding is always a gift. 
It's always a grace. No one can figure it out on their own. No one can demand it. No one can say, like they're working some complex puzzle, I I solved it. I've discovered it. I've unlocked the key. It has to be revealed to you. Jesus says to his disciples, in effect, listen, I'm telling you the secret, but not them. That's sobering. I'm making it known to you, he says. Now, I think the disciples are a little mystified at this point. One of the reasons they ask about these parables is because, although they don't want to say so, they don't really understand them either. They still have a long ways to go. But Jesus is working slowly, patiently, carefully with them. He knows what kind of hearts they have. He knows that their hearts, however much they may struggle with doubt like Thomas or or lack of faith like Peter or uh, any number of other weaknesses, he knows their hearts are, are generally soft toward him. They're far from perfect, but their hearts are inclined toward Jesus in faith. They have struggles and doubts, but they're not leaving him and going back home. They're sticking with Jesus. They're following him. They're learning from him. They're staking their lives on his person and message and mission. So Jesus is patient with them. He says, I'm I'm showing you. I'm telling you the secret. I'm making it known to you. Verse 12, he says, for the one who has, more will be given. He'll have an abundance. Jesus sees that seed of faith in them, and he says, you're going to get more. I'm going to show you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to make myself known. But, There's another sign. For the one who doesn't have, even what he has will be taken away. The person whose heart is hard, with little love or little use or little need for Jesus, even the little understanding or wisdom they may have is not going to last. The knowledge of Christ and his kingdom and what God is doing is, is a gracious gift. That's what Jesus says in these first couple verses. But look at verse 13. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Now he's going to give another related reason. Because seeing they don't see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. They don't see and they don't understand because they, their eyes are spiritually blind, their ears are spiritually deaf, their hearts are spiritually hard. And when Jesus teaches in parables, it confirms them in their blindness and deafness and hardness. The understanding of Jesus and his kingdom is always a gracious gift, but the hard-hearted who don't receive it can't blame anybody but themselves. It's their own hard-heartedness, their own stubbornness, their own rebellion, their own idolatries, their own pride that makes them literally senseless They can't see or hear or think or understand with spiritual insight because of their own hard hearts. And Jesus shows in verse 14 that this is the way it's always been. He says in verse 14, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. 
Jesus goes back 700 years to the great prophet Isaiah and says, this is what Isaiah was talking about. Why don't we do that too? Turn, turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. The first five chapters of Isaiah, God speaks through the prophet against the deep sinfulness and rebellion and idolatry of God's people. Things are bad, spiritually bad. And then at the beginning of Isaiah 6, we won't take time to read it, but we see Isaiah receives this vision. He's in the temple. He sees the holiness of God descend on the, te on the temple, and he is overwhelmed. He says, woe is me, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So there's this massive contrast between the sinfulness of God's people and the holiness of God. And Isaiah, having encountered both, is overwhelmed. And God says, who, who am I going to send to speak my words to my people? And Isaiah says, I'm here, send me. Send me. And God does, but, but look what he says, verse 9. And he, God says to Isaiah, go and say to this people, here's the words Jesus quotes, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So the, verse, the words that Jesus quotes, he says, look, these people, they're not, Isaiah, I need a prophet. Isaiah says, I'll go. And God says, okay, speak. But listen, they're not going to listen. They're not going to see and understand. They're not going to turn and repent Leave their sin and follow me. They're not going to do that. That's your job, Isaiah. Go ahead. Enjoy that success. Jesus is saying in Matthew 13, hey, that's what's going on here. That's what's going on when people see and hear me. Notice, notice the implicit connection between the message of a holy God in Isaiah 6 and Jesus in Matthew 13. Both are speaking God's words. Both our God. Same response, Jesus says. That's what's happening here. Now, Jesus stops quoting Isaiah 6, right where we stopped. But it's fascinating to see how Isaiah goes on. Look at the next verse, verse 11. Then I, Isaiah said, how long, O Lord? How long is it going to last? How long is it going to be this way? That God's word is proclaimed and people are deaf and blind and hard-hearted and don't respond to get confirmed in judgment. Isaiah says, well, wait a minute. How long do I have to do this? How long is it going to be this way? It's not going to last forever, is it? And God said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land although a tenth remain in it it'll be burned again like a terebinth or an oak 
whose stump remains when it is felled. God says, look, this is what's going to happen to summarize. And this is to summarize exactly what Israel's history will be for the next several generations after Isaiah. The people are going to be judged. They're going to be carried off into exile. There will be just a small number of people left in the land. They'll be brought back, but things will be hard. They'll just be a little remnant of people. He says it's like, it's like a stump. Israel's this mighty tree that under David and Solomon has grown into this glorious kingdom. And because of their wickedness and sin, it's been chopped down, and all that's left is a stump. But the stump's not dead. There's still roots there. There's still, there's still a little bit of life. And in time, it could come back. So verse 13 ends, the holy seed is its stump. The holy seed, or that word could be offspring. There's a seed, there's a stump, there's this potential for life, and it's going to be brutal. It's going to be brutal for centuries. But the stump is there, the life's not gone. Something could happen. So, so just see, just see where these next chapters go. Right here is chapter seven. Let me just let me just show you a couple things. Look at verse fourteen. Isaiah seven fourteen. What what could happen to bring this back to life? Verse fourteen. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. A child born of a virgin called Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 1 picks that up. That's going to happen. We see in Isaiah chapter 8, Emmanuel twice in verses 8 and verse 10. The land, Emmanuel, God with us. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness. From this, this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And Luke picks this up. This is going to happen too. Then look at chapter 11. Verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. There's our stump again. A shoot shall come forth from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. All the Gospels pick that up at the baptism. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He won't judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he'll kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. A little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing mother shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. There's a stump. There's still life. There's still a chance. What will it look like? How long, O oh Lord, what will it look like when it's come, when that stump is grown up and born fruit? What will it look like? A child will be born of a virgin. They'll call him Emmanuel. For unto us a child is born. A root from the st stump of Jesse will come forth and rule over the nations. We see all of that fulfilled right here in the Gospels in the person of Jesus Christ. How long? Till the Son of God comes as a Son of Man. And God's people see their fortunes restored once again. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, he doesn't fully understand. He hears the promise. He, he senses the hope that's there. There is a stump. He's not going to see the fruit. Generation after generation will read the promise. They'll see the hope, but they won't see the fruit. Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? But that's not how Jesus, back in Matthew 13, he doesn't say that. He quotes the first part about their hardness and dullness of heart. And then he says, back in Matthew 13, verse 16, he says to his disciples, but blessed are your eyes, for they see. Your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and didn't see it. To hear what you hear and didn't hear it. Disciples, you don't, you don't yet appreciate the blessing that you have. People have been waiting centuries for this. People have been born and grown up, lived and died, and not seen what you get to see. You would think then, with these disciples, that they'd have it all together. That they'd understand it. Oh, I see. I see. I've got it. But we know as we read through Matthew's gospel, they, they still struggle. They still don't see like they should. There's still one more crucial thing that has to happen for the clarity that they need. 
It's still opaque here. We see that right at the beginning of the Christmas story. If we went back to the beginning of Matthew, Jesus is born. We read the story in chapter 1 of Matthew, but chapter 2 starts with, with wise men coming from the east. Right? They come. They travel hundreds, maybe thousands of miles because of a sign they see from God in the sky and from promises they evidently find in the scriptures. They travel thousands of miles. They come to Jerusalem. They're only five miles away from where the Christ child is. And they go and they speak to Herod. We've come a long ways. We followed the signs. We saw it in the sky. We saw it in the book. He's got to be close. Can you tell us where he is? And Herod says, who are we talking about? Where is this? Where's, where's he supposed to be from? He asks the advisors. Bethlehem. He's, he's five miles away. And Herod has no eyes to see. No heart to believe or understand. He has to tell them, when you find him, when God shows you where he is, come back and tell me. How are your eyes? How are your ears? How is your heart? If you see Jesus as glorious and beautiful and good, worthy of trust, worthy of giving your very life, that's a gracious gift. Other people have had more information and more knowledge than you, and they haven't seen it. If God has opened your eyes and heart, He's been extraordinarily kind to you. But if you have not seen Jesus as glorious and good, if you've not leaned on him in trust and faith, given your very life to him, you can't blame him. You can't blame him. It's not his fault. See, not too long after this story we read here in Matthew 13, in a matter of months, Jesus' disciples, who are still in a fog, will have their eyes opened. Because Jesus will go to the cross. He will die a death in the place of sinners. He'll rise again to new life. He'll return to heaven to be with his Father. He'll send his Spirit. And all of a sudden, by the enablement of the Spirit, with, with the hindsight of looking back at the death and the resurrection, these disciples who are in a fog, they'll start going back to the Old Testament. Think of Peter and the apostles in Acts 2 and 3 and 4 going back to the Old Testament saying, Oh, now I see. Now I see. And when they preach, what do they do? See, the Messiah had to die. He had to rise again. That's where it all comes to a culmination in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, you have that information. There's nobody else to blame. What are we to do? Well, we're to pray that God would open our eyes and open our ears and soften our hearts that we would receive Jesus as he really is, the promised one who gives life, eternal life, to all who put their trust in him. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I just don't see it. 
I'm just not sure that he's that great. I'm just not sure I'm willing to give that much up. I, I understand. I understand. Let me encourage you. Keep looking. Keep asking God to open your eyes. Keep praying that God would give you a heart to see what so many others have seen. At Christmas time, we celebrate a Savior who came not in the way anybody expected. Not the way we thought he would come. We thought he would come in power and glory and pomp and circumstance, destroying his enemies. Instead, he comes as a humble baby. He doesn't kill his enemies. He comes to die for his enemies. May we at this season remember, remember the Savior that was sent. May we be thankful for the grace that has been shown to us, that we would see this humble child as the Son of God and King of the world and as a glorious and wonderful Savior worthy of all our faith and trust. Father, I pray that you would help us. We need much grace. Lord, there, there are undoubtedly people here this morning who need to have their eyes opened. It's supernatural. It's a miracle. And I ask you to do it right now, that you'd open eyes and ears and soften hearts, give understanding, that this baby born in a manger, that this man who goes and dies on a cross is the Son of God and the King of the world. And that our ears wouldn't be heavy and our, our eyes closed and our understanding weak, but, but that you would open our eyes and ears and soften our hearts and give us understanding that we would not be spiritually dull and senseless, but that we would turn and be healed. A work you love to do. And I pray that for those of us who have put our trust and hope in Christ, that we would, during this Christmas season especially, delight in the gift of your Son and renew our commitment to follow him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And Lord, for those here who haven't done that, I pray that this Christmas season would be the time that they wouldn't leave here today without seeking me out or, or someone who brought them here this morning to, to see and understand and embrace the truth of a Savior who died for sinners and rose to give us eternal life. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you for coming this morning. It's been good to be here together. I encourage you to enjoy a wonderful Christmas with your family and friends. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next Sunday. Let me send you out with these words of benediction from 2 Corinthians 13. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this Christmas season. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Christmas. Mm -hmm.